Launching in 2015 by the Writing and Literacies Communication Team, Writing and Literacies Oral Histories is a podcast series providing an added medium to highlight the origins and founding of the SIG. In this series, we consider new directions for scholarship and research and hear established and emerging members of the Writing and Literacies organization. Today on Writing and Literacies Oral Histories, we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Roussel, professor in the Department of Teacher Education and Canada Research Chair in Multiliteracies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. I'm Dr. Robert Leblanc, Assistant Professor of Education at Cal Poly Pomona and historian for the Writing and Literacy SIG. Titled Common Strands, Multimodality, Literacy, and International Perspectives, this podcast surveys Dr. Roussel's engagement with the SIG as a Canadian and recent recipient of the Steve Witte Award for Lifetime Achievement. For this particular podcast, Dr. Roussel and I talk for about 30 minutes about her time at King's College London as a doctoral student of Brian Streets and the emergence of multimodality as a focus in the field. And here we talk about the intersections of British and American research on the literacy field, notably in the 1990s. Now, Dr. Roussel and I are also both Canadians, and so we spend some of our time toward the end talking about the status of Canadian literacy research, the political economy of publishing in Canada, and future directions for literacy research north of the 49th parallel. Here's Dr. Jennifer Roussel, Canada Research Chair and Professor at Brock University. Thinking about your time with the SIG, I'm really interested as somebody who comes from another country, how it is that you originally got involved with the writing and literacy SIG at at ARA. Going back in time, I did my PhD in England with Brian Street. So I started out in 1997. Brian, when I first arrived at King's, he had been there for a couple of years. And he said, listen, if you do anything as a PhD student, you must go to ARA and you must join SIGS, especially the Writing Literacy SIGS. So he kind of planted the seed way back when. I think it was probably my second or third year in the PhD program that I went to New Orleans, probably was my third year actually, to ARA and I indeed went to the SIG meeting and Brian uh, knew a lot of people there, obviously, and he was sort of part of a lot of that group at that time. So, as I said, 1999, I was around. So that's how I started off, you know, what it's like to be a PhD student. You're sort of, you know, quietly, respectfully sitting, you know, networking with different luminaries and chatting with different people and other grad students and all that good stuff. So that's those are really the early roots. What pulled you to King's College London? Uh, I, I know, you know, for myself, I worked with Brian uh, Street at, at Penn, and that was a major draw for me. Mm. Um, but what, what pulled you to, to work at King's? As somebody who was coming out of Canada, what, what pulled you to want to go to England and study there? I had an odd trajectory. It's not the usual trajectory for people. I went into ESL. I trained as an ESL teacher. Then I did that for a while. I moved into educational publishing. I was in educational publishing for probably two years. And then I decided I wanted to do a PhD. So I applied broad, like I applied widely. And King's was a place that appealed to me. And certainly I had seen Brian Street's work. I'd read it. But really, it was just dumb luck, to be honest. So I got into the PhD program and started working with Brian. So that was how I got into it. And then I didn't realize, you know, the serendipity there that uh, how how amazing he he is as a supervisor, and um, and the kind of world it opened up. 
so as somebody who went into Kings with uh, maybe a, a different sort of orientation than, than strict literacy studies or new literacy studies, what was happening at Kings at the time that pulled you into the world of new literacy studies? What, what, was, it, what was sort of happening or what was hot at the time that um, intellectually drew you into that field? I have an English lit background and an ESL background. And so when I arrived at King's, I'll never forget this. I arrived and it was our first meeting together. And I sat down and he said, so what do you want to do exactly? Like, what are some of your ideas? And I had gone in thinking that he would really want to look at, um, I wanted to look at ESL again, return to those roots, look at culture, go into language learning context and focus on language learners and culture because I figured that was a very good match for him. And actually, what he said to me surprised me because he was more interested in my publishing background. And he said, there is something, I think, there that's important that's not that's not been out there, not been widely published. And the only person at that time who had done work is Alan Luke, Gunter Kress. So Gunter Kress was gaining a lot of momentum at that time with his work on multimodality. And at the time, his work was fairly radical because... There, were the, there was the in-lit in group at the Institute, and then there were the, the semioticians. And they, they were two kind of factions, and I would say the semio, social semioticians were fairly radical, and Gunter Kress was really at the center of that. And he was really that whole movement. Gunter and Brian knew each other well, and they're very good friends. And so what happened after that first meeting is I really started getting into, A, the new literacy studies track, of course, because it's Brian, but also, from the very beginning, he pushed me towards multimodality by looking at publishing, if that makes sense. So there was a sense of going into different schools. So I ended up in, the, in my PhD going to four different schools and looking at the culture of the schools. So that's a little bit of his very early work with Joanna Street, where he looked at the pedagogy, uh, you know, the pedagogization, how did he say it? Um, pedagogization of literacy. So mm-hmm. how... Uh, literacy is spatialized, how children sit in rows and power dynamics that are created and circulate within pedagogic contexts. So there was a sense of looking at the different cultures of the schools I was in and then bringing in the multimodality and how discourses and cultures become embedded in pedagogic materials. So I would look at the published materials they would use and then go back to the publishers. So a lot of them used Oxford Reading Tree as their reading scheme. So they called it reading schemes at the time in the UK. So I went to Oxford and spoke with the two, the author and the illustrator of Oxford Reading Tree about what they thought about, what were the ideologies, discourses, and centers of culture that they embedded. So it's a very white working class reading scheme, for example. And how did that play out when I was in an Islamic school, which is one of my schools, and they used Oxford Reading Tree. When I joined Brian. He was getting more and more interested in social semiotics and multimodality. He had had this history in NLS. So he, I think when he worked with me, he did this very gentle nudge to, to try and think through those two strands. And that really informed a good decade of my work, is braiding together NLS and, and multimodality. Thinking about the British context in, in relation to the writing and literacy SIG, and I think it's actually a piece that even saying it out loud, I'm realizing has been missing in some respects in, in my kind of overall historical understanding of the SIG. If we think about so many of the foundational, I don't want to call them heuristics or frameworks that we have in our field, you know, folks like David Barton, Mary Hamilton, um, in Lancaster, 
critical discourse analysis. Somebody like you know Norman Fairclough, who was at uh, University of East Anglia for such a long time. Obviously, Gunter Kress at IES. Somebody like Ben Rampton in linguistic anthropology of education at at King's. So actually, a lot of our kind of intellectual trajectory in new literacy studies is sort of English oriented. I don't I don't know if you can expand on that a little bit, but just what it was like working in England at a time when an awful lot of theory and and research and background was coming out that would have really major field shifting implications for us. Well, you know that's very interesting, Robert, because I think. Part of the thing, and now I look back, I again, I realize how lucky I was, that Brian really put his feet in both worlds. So there was a very, there was a large contingent um, within the UK, and Brian knew all of them. So he would regularly have these lunchtime seminars, and I think he did the same thing at UPenn. So these monthly talks that would happen, sometimes they were at the end of the day and we'd go to the pub, right? He'd also have, uh, he also had a couple of conferences, and the one I remember most was in my first year of the PhD, and I say all of this because it was equally half American um, and half half British. There weren't any Canadians that I can remember. And at the and at this particular meeting, what came out strongly is that there were these common strands across across the Atlantic, as it were. Right. So there were uh, there was a, a look at um, a close look at discourse, a close look at culture, a close look at ideologies and tensions, and the notion of power situating uh, tensions and power, and a lot of talk about text, text and practices. I remember we, a, a good uh, whole morning was devoted to the notion of, of practice, literacy practice versus literacy events. So that was a common uh, obsession, I would say, for both both the Americans and the uh, Brits. So the Americans, I'm thinking of, well, there was David Bloom there, obviously. We had Sherry Bryce Heath there. So there were a lot of different American academics who were there who gave a very different flavor to the issue. So it was much more about race, uh, whereas in the UK, it was much more about social class. And there was a lot of talk within the American tradition about the ethnography of communication. Now, to me, that's a very American movement, whereas NLS, I actually think of as a more of a British one. So although James Paul G. was at the same meeting, he was associated with NLS. A lot of the Brits were really strongly associated with it, I think. That was the sense I got. And and then when Brian would go to state meetings for writing and literacies, he would work very well with within a, the American ways of speaking about NLS. So there were slight differences. For example, in the UK, there was a real interesting text and the notion of text. Or it was framed when you go to AERA and writing literacies meetings as more about discourse and language. I think that's really interesting to think about the ways that these similar paths are going on simultaneously, often with different intellectual traditions, but on the same on the same thread. And my, my hunch about the ethnography of communication in some respects is the centrality of Del Del Himes um, in the American tradition. Who, interestingly enough, was was dean at the University of Pennsylvania for a time at the College yeah. of Education. And so, you know, Brian being able to move back and forth between those two worlds, I'm sure, I have to ask him, but I'm sure he had some some engagement with Dell um, while he was there. But but it is interesting to think the way that, that different sort of themes get taken up or coded in different ways, depending on on where people are. To, to pivot back to the SIG a little more specifically, so when you started at the Writing and Literacy SIG as a doc student, do you remember what was going on at the time or you know, what the kind of prominent conversations were or who the major players were at the SIG um, as you became more and more involved with it? What I remember so much about Writing and Literacy's meetings is there was a lot of discussion about 
um, as I said, about language. There was a concentration on very close uh, linguistic ethnography at the time. So there was a look at a look at intense look at, at bits of conversations. So I do remember a meeting where we would exchange excerpts from interviews, for example, and share them and code them together collectively and do very detailed excavation of discourses. So there, there was that tradition, and that's uh, a little bit of ethnography of communication. There's a little bit of NLS. People would uh, opt for different traditions. So there was the, we talked about the Norman Faircloth model, and that model was much more grounded in power paradigms and not necessarily schooling per se. So at the meeting, sometimes you'd have folks who are much more um, anthropological and into other, other sort of outside school contexts. And you had a whole group that was inside school context, and I tended to fall into that group. I don't know why that happened. It just happened, again, serendipity. So I would look at uh, classroom discourse, um, you know, thinking a lot about David Bloom's work, and, and I would use a lot of James Paul G. So my, in the dissertation that I, that I wrote, I really, what I looked at is Big D, uh, James Paul G, Big D discourses materializing within modalities in, in textbooks. And that was, that was the study. So I would bring in my data and I would talk to different people. And the writing literacy is one of the night, really nice things about it is that it crosses those generations of scholars. And it's also quite hands on with networking where people would share data. And, um, I remember that in meetings and I remember a concentration again on words. And then slowly as the years went on, now I didn't go to all of, I haven't been, you know, regular with, with the SIG as much as I'd like to, but I know when I've gone to meetings, there's been a, I've seen, I've seen a marked movement to different modalities now. So to moving images now and to um, virtual spaces and other things. But really at that time, the focus was on language and, and words. I think the discussions back then were about more formalized uh, orders of discourse. So I think I think a lot about. I just remember Norman Faircloth talking at a at a meeting in the UK at King's about you know thinking in terms of orders of discourse across different contexts in school or out of school. And I I do remember the Holland Schultz book being very important in moving the field to start thinking about outside of school. Mm. So I'm I'm always careful about that. I can't think of a specific reason why I'm careful about saying inside outside school, but I, I, I like to move across different contexts. I think I'm more fixated on individuals as meaning makers and, and, and how those subjectivities circulate and the kinds of things that they make and do. For the SIG to be as rich as it's always been, I think it's important for the writing and literacy SIG to stick with different contexts, but with a central focus on composition or, um, how how the, the nature of writing um, and the nuances of writing. We've touched on this a little bit already, but I, I am curious if you have any larger reflections as an international member of the SIG. I mean, you've obviously got a, a rich international experience. You're a Canadian. You've done graduate work in England. You had a job in New Jersey. Any thoughts on on how your particular international perspective has influenced the kind of participation you've had in the SIG? And that can be even in the logistics of your participation in the SIG. Um, but also thinking more broadly about your international uh, international perspective with regards to your work. Do you feel like I, I was lucky at the time because I got exposed to a lot of different people through through relationships with people like Peter Freebody and Barbara Comer and Mastin Prindlew in South Africa. You, you start to realize that that the kind of global world is 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 smaller than you think, 
and that people are, this, similar issues are coming up. Now, they're said in, in shades of different ways, but fundamentally, there is the, the deeper commitment to social inclusion. There's a deeper commitment to opening up what meaning-making is. There are certainly at times tensions and different conversations that throw into relief some differences. But I think one of the nice things about the literacy world, and it comes out in the writing of Literacy SIG, because what I do find it is a fairly international group, yeah. and it comes out in conversations there, but we're all talking about, you know, we're still talking about literacy practices, we're still talking about literacy events, we're still invoking that language, but steadily there's been a new lexicon, new lexicons that have come in, right? It's almost like it's kind of in a diaspora, right? Like you're, you're, you're merging different concepts I think the game changer happened with the um, ascendance of the digital. So when the digital came along, that started to divide things slightly internationally and slightly in the, in literacy studies. Probably not even slightly. There was much more of a larger gap. So there were people who were just deeply committed to more of the old school linguistic ethnography, and they stuck with that, and they do it incredibly well. And then there were people who said, oh, this is interesting, but I actually want to change, shift gears, and I want to move into virtual worlds. So someone like Guy Merchant is a very nice example of that. And he's part of the SIG in his way as well. And that is moving into virtual worlds and video games and, and that domain and really looking at similar issues, literacy events, literacy practices, but how they're different in those worlds. That work around the world is, is ever so slightly different, as I said. But the longer that these fields are around the more it blurs geographic differentiation. It probably follows along with the fact that a lot of these digital and mobile practices actually blur notions of nationality and identity as well. Yeah, I think there are two important points there. I think one is that NLS has been around for a long time. I think internationally people were having different interpretations, but, but when they would get together at places like the Writing and Literacies meetings, there'd start to be conversations that would even out the field a bit. NLS started to become more of a, of a broader international field. And the same thing has happened with digital. The same thing will happen with post-humanism and other things. So it's, it's special issues and conferences where you start dealing with these issues and then people start using similar language. To follow along with that, you hold a Canada Research Chair for Multiliteracies. And I'm interested to hear your perspective on literacy research in Canada, what the scope of the field is, what directions is it moving into, where you see the field headed. Well, Canada, as you know, tends to be a little bit, a slight satellite, I should say. I mean, there are really good researchers in Canada across provinces. I think that there would be great if there was a writing literacy SIG for Canada. There's the literacy research group that meets at CSSE, and that's still strong. But I think um, having a common time and space where people get together and talk through some of these terms, uh, ideologies, discourses would be very helpful. But to answer your question about Canadian research, where it is, I think that there's very, um, very strong work going on in early childhood, right? So you get people like Pam Woody. I work with someone named Deb Harwood and Diane Collier. And um, out west, you get Diane Dagenet and Kayleen Tui. And then, you know, pockets of people who do early childhood, Linda Laidlaw, U of A, they, they all do this multimodal work that's about social inclusion and social class. It's about the particular flavor of that in Canada, in different provinces. So as you well know, there's a difference between Eastern Canada and Western Canada and Central Canada. 
And then you get uh, researchers in Quebec um, who are doing some early child work. And then there's a lot of number of researchers who do work in adolescence. You get someone like Bronwyn Lowe or Christian Eret in, in Quebec who are doing work. Now, this is in English. Um, in terms of French-speaking researchers, I'm less familiar, and that's more my, my failing, really. I, I have to improve my French. But I think you also get researchers at uh, UBC who are doing work with adolescents. Maureen Kendrick is starting to do that. So I think in Canada, you get age ranges that are strong in terms of literacy. You get pockets in terms of provinces. Overall, there seems to be uh, a policy push towards media, so a lot of kind of Canadian policy white papers tend to have to do with media. And I have mixed feelings about that, quite honestly. I think the term multimodality has never taken off, really. I think, really, it's literally because it's such a such a clunky word. Like, it's a word that's it, it's not easy to understand. So media seems to be an easier way of selling that for educators across Canada. And the research push really is moving much more toward digital economy, and there's been a more recent push towards doing Aboriginal work. And, and so, you know, you researchers work in terms of funding cycles. So where is the funding going now? You tend to go there in order to get, get funding. I think it's interesting the way that Canada, in some ways, is restricted by its publishing capacity, which is that we don't have um, huge presses the way that we do in the United States in order to churn out material um, and disseminate some some of the really good stuff that you've just articulated. And so I think... You know, if there's any sense that, that Canadians aren't as well sort of traveled in terms of the notoriety of the work that we're doing, some of it does seem to me like specifically about the political economy of publishing in a smaller country like that. Oh, that's um, really smart. That's, yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the things about Canada is the open access piece. Shirk really wants all publications to be open access. And I think there's a real strength in that. But the trouble you get into is that a lot of the top journals in literacy are not open access. So, you know, that's something we're going to have to figure out as, as a field and other, other fields like sociology and cultural studies, they're all dealing with this as well. The other thought I had when you were talking was I, when you were saying things around, you know, media, I was thinking obviously of the Ontario curriculum, which has a media literacy element. A lot of provinces have adopted languages of, of you know, viewing and representing. But it does strike me that the Canadian context is is different from the American context insofar as there is a fairly good, strong working relationship between ministries of education and colleges of education in a way I don't think you quite see here in the United States. I don't know if you if you think that's true or not. I think I think it's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely work across provinces with individuals. So I work with Linda Laidlaw, and I, I work with people like Marianne McTavish at UBC and people at McGill like Christian Eret. So personally, and this is from my own perspective, I find working across provinces. I don't do a lot of work with ministries, actually, which I'd love to do, but it's just it's just been more um, where I put my energies. Uh, so, But I think from what I hear, the ministries do work quite well together. They use similar language. There isn't a huge difference. Although certain provinces, I think the, the, the provinces where you're from, I think uh, Western provinces, and we're talking prairie provinces, have a really nice open kind of curricula. And the same thing with Eastern. I think it's Ontario that, to me, is more restricted. And BC apparently is very good as well. And from what I can see, it it's sort of uses the, the right language, if you know what I mean, like yeah. about multimodality, about creating a more expansive view of literacy? My hunch is that part of the reason for the openness, at least in, in Saskatchewan, which is the context I know best, is, is really the 
uh, respect and inclusion of the colleges of education in the decision process around forming curriculum in, in the Ministry of Education. And, and some of that is just because there's, I mean, it's the kind of local politics uh, that, uh, of, of curriculum making, which is that a lot of the, the people who make curricula at the, at, the, at the ministry level came through the University of Saskatchewan and the University of Regina. They know those people and they respect their opinion. And so some really good stuff gets to make its way into the curriculum and not just around literacy. You know, there's a big push now in, in the Prairie Provinces around a more inclusive treaty education. Um, and I think that's that's something that's incredibly beneficial, but also something that sort of demonstrates what a positive working relationship between ministries and colleges can can enact. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I know, for example, Michelle Honeyford and mm-hmm. uh, Wayne Sherman, they work closely with the ministry and they do beautiful work um, in terms of Aboriginal literacy and looking at artifactual literacies and those notions. My last question for you is just to invite you to, to describe a bit of your current work um, and maybe talk a bit how it has some roots in the, the writing and literacies community. When I go to the writing literacy stick, I love going to hear uh, different presentations and papers. One of the things, as I said, I've noticed over the years is how um, there are different hot issues that are thrown into relief with each meeting. So this year's ARA uh, and LRA both had a lot of papers on things like translanguaging in terms of language learners, um, transculturalism, cosmopolitanism, and then there was another field, uh, post-humanism, that was a focus, and emotions and affect, right? So so over the years with writing and literacies, I've seen that happen. I did a handbook with Kate Paul. Uh, well, it came out in 2015, but working on that handbook really was a bit of a game changer for me because it gave us a sense of where the field is. And for the longest time, I, I chugged along and really, although I draw on other traditions, I really focused on NLS and, and multimodality. And I think in doing that handbook, I started... Uh, really reaching out into into some of the other other fields that are interdisciplinary. So something like emotion and affect in other fields, scholars would, in cultural studies and in sociology would say, well, this has been around for a long time. So so drawing on some of that literature has been really helpful for my thinking. So I would say right now the research that I've applied for, the research that I'm doing, tends to find ways of reframing the stuff I've been doing in relation to these newer areas. So in some ways it's discouraging because there's a lot of reading and rethinking and, 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 and learning. But, you know, that's a very good thing. I think you always have to do that. You always have to be open to those sorts of things. And, and by reading, I'm talking about reading across affect. Um, I'm reading Sarah Ahmed now, and I'm thinking about it in relation to photographs. So that kind of work stretches me in a different way. And then post-humanism, I'm doing a, working on a special issue with Candace Kuby, and uh, Tara Gutschall-Rucker, and in that, doing that kind of work, reading across articles, reading across the field, again, that gives you a very different notion of materiality, of, of the agency within materiality. So that's my long-winded way of saying that's where I'm thinking. Those are the sorts of things I'm thinking. So provisionalizing a lot, challenging what I used to know, realizing, you know, the epiphany is that I, I tended to be kind of... Uh, stuck in a particular frame, and I didn't think I was because I thought NLS always provisionalized and made things relative. But actually, these kinds of fields give a very different feel to something like multimodality or thinking about how a particular artifact that a student produces is emotional and how does emotion and affect 
how does it get laden and what does it say and what does it signal and what are the motivations behind that and interest behind that. Now, Gunter Kreft said that years ago in before writing. Um, so in, in some ways, that was my, that and Deb Hicks' book, those were my two books I'd always take with me wherever I go. But it's it's getting back to to a lot of that re, rethinking, challenging what I've done. In concrete terms, I tend to work across age groups, so I do I do research with children. The research I've done with children has tended to be digital. I don't know how it happened, but iPads fell in my lap and became an area of scholarship for me. So looking at digital domains, creating a language for redefining reading in terms of haptic uh, haptic engagements, and doing work with Alison Simpson and Maureen Walsh on um, the nature of reading on an iPad and reading trajectories. So that's one area. And that's tended to be with children. And then a lot of work doing uh, digital, it's all been multimodal, but it's been both digital and non-digital with adolescents and teenagers. Really, my heart kind of sits in that age group about how young people think through different modalities and uh, the ramifications of that for the larger field of literacy studies. So I've... Um, I'm hoping to start a research study in the spring, uh, Maker Literacies, where I go into different contexts, out-of-school contexts in terms of community centers and in-school contexts in terms of classrooms, some middle school, uh, mostly high school, doing uh, work with different modes. So sound-based work, uh, photographic work, moving image-based documentary work with young people. That is based around the notion of, of DIY and maker, so bringing staff in and having them make things but the big piece that's important to me is always having some sort of professional, like a documentary filmmaker, come in and talk through what happens and have young people get that kind of craft about a, about an area or a field or discipline, um, a profession. And then I'm doing work with Diane Collier in, in both Glasgow and Hamilton, and the focus will really be about using digital tools, but doing them, thinking about the issue of access and the digital divide. So how to do working class young people use, mobilize uh, digital technologies? How do, do they get them? What do they make? What do they produce from them? And in that kind of work, there will be post-human and social class, you know, ideologies embedded in that, I would think. So that's kind of the, the future work. And I've finished up a couple of years of doing both the arts-based work as a pilot study to the maker work called Community Art Zone, and that's coming out in a special issue of pedagogies. And then the digital work that I've done has been work that's coming out in the Teachers College Record Special Issue on Convergence. You said you sound very busy. That's the that's the best way I can organize that. Yeah. yeah. What I really I really like about that is I think it brings together or sort of articulates a number of things that are contemporary in the field of of writing and literacy studies, whether it's affect or it's posthumanism or it's uh, it's making. I, I think in many ways your work sort of captures the present spirit of the field. Thank you very much for your time, Jen. I really appreciate it. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. This has been an oral history podcast of the Writing and Literacy Special Interest Group of the AARA. Special thanks to Dr. Vaughn Watson, Assistant Professor of Teacher Education at Michigan State University, whose piece you heard opening our podcast. I'm Dr. Robert LeBlanc, historian for the Writing and Literacy SIG. Thank you for listening. <laughs>